Hi, I'm Whitney. And I'm Camden. Welcome to Ghosts and Garnets. Oh, man. I just saw Cat Butthole. She's so fat. <laughs> cat Butthole is not my favorite thing. No. Speaking of buttholes, let's talk about this guy today. Mm. I'm going to just tell you guys straight off the bat. As you're imagining this man that we are going to tell you the story about, if this story was made into a movie, and I cannot believe it has not been made into a movie yet. If this story was made into a movie, this guy would be played by Joe Pesci. Ah! (laughs) For real, for real. So as we are going through this, I want you to imagine Joe Pesci in this story. Because today we are telling you the story of a man who was known in his community as John J. Shaw, a.k.a. Enrico Ponzo. And this story is wild times. Those are two very different names. He had a lot of names, this man. He had he had a lot of aliases. Anyway, I, can't, I truly I cannot believe this hasn't been made into a movie yet. Because it could be all of the things. It could be, it's like a gangster, mobster, slash romance slash mystery slash comedy it's got it all does it have the love story it has a love story it's not a love story it's not a classical love story yeah i think it's more of a oh god these two together kind of love story. all right bonnie and clyde Mm. if bonnie was a extremely tall racist and clyde was a mobster in bib overalls and a straw hat (laughs) okay okay yep (laughs) all right known as the gateway to the owyhee mountains marsing idaho is a small agricultural community tucked between the snake river and a butte that resembles a sunbathing lizard (laughs) i someday want to be described as a sunbathing lizard that's what it's called it's called lizard butte and it's called lizard butte because it looks like a lizard that is lying out in the sun carry on all right it was a quiet community where everyone knew everyone's business or so the residents thought until february of 2011 when federal agents descended and one of their own turned out to be the total opposite of the overall bib-wearing semi-rancher he'd been to them for the past decade. On the afternoon of February 7th, Dale Shepard heard a knock on his door. He wasn't expecting anyone, but also wasn't surprised to see that his neighbor, Jay Shaw, was on his doorstep. Jay said that he was just stopping by to make sure that Dale's computer was still working after he had helped Dale fix it. But Dale knew Jay probably wasn't there just to check on his computer. Jay's girlfriend, Kara, had taken off with their kids the summer before, and Jay was still having a really hard time with the whole thing and often just needed someone to listen. Dale liked Jay. He considered him to be a good neighbor, even though sometimes his East Coast abrasiveness rubbed people the wrong way. He'd been around for 10 years or so, and in that time, he had really ingratiated himself into the community. Jay had a dozen head of cattle on 12 acres next to Dale's property, but no one considered him to be a rancher or a farmer. Actually, no one really knew what Jay did. Jay was in his early 40s, so Dale figured he couldn't be retired yet. Jay told some people he was a freelance graphic designer. 
But Dale figured either way, it was not really any of his business or concern, so he didn't spend a lot of time thinking about Jay's profession. All he knew was that Jay managed the local irrigation association, keeping the pumps running, patching pipes, and making sure that the bills got paid so that the 35 families that lived in the area had water for their fields. And Jay did it despite it basically being a thankless volunteer job, and Dale appreciated that Jay did that for the community. So Dale listened while Jay complained about Kara. Dale remembered everyone would call Jay Mr. Mom because he was the primary caregiver to his kids. He was more of a mother to those kids than their mother, Dale thought. So Dale listened for more than an hour while Jay told him how he just had to get his kids back. When Jay finally ran out of steam, he told Dale he was going to buy some hay from a man named Bob Briggs who lived on the other side of Hog Road. So Dale got into his Saturn and he drove out to Hog Road, heading to the Whispering Heights subdivision in Marsing. Bob was out in his pickup checking the irrigation lines and saw Jay park on the side of the road and get out of his car and wave him over. According to an article in GQ, Bob wasn't particularly fond of Jay. It's not that he disliked him so much. He just thought Jay was odd. A city boy playing rancher, so far as Bob knew, because Jay told him he'd grown up in New York. Quote, he asked a lot of dumb questions. You'd give him good advice and then he'd ignore it, Bob says. I thought everyone in New York was like him, and I was glad I didn't live in New York. Bob pulled to the edge of the road and rolled down his window. Jay asked about buying some hay, which he'd done once or twice before. As they talked, a blue pickup rolled by. Jay watched it as it continued north toward Cemetery Road. That's a cop, Jay said. Bob laughed and said, that ain't no cop. I seen that pickup buying hay just like you. Then the Chevy made a U at Cemetery, turned back around and started back up Hog Road. A white sedan was now following it. As the pickup got closer, another white sedan appeared from the west out of Whispering Heights. Blue lights flashed from all three dashboards, the truck and the stands accelerating, then skidding to a stop next to Bob and Jay, boxing them in. Six federal agents got out and looked at Jay. Are you Jay Shaw? One of them asked. Jay didn't say anything, but he didn't resist as he was handcuffed and placed in the back of one of the cars. Bob stayed in his truck, watching more commotion than Hog Road had probably ever seen. An agent checked out his ID, and it seemed to take an awfully long time for them to believe that Bob was just an old farmer. Once that was settled, Bob asked one of the agents what Jay had done wrong. The agent said he couldn't tell him. Then Bob had one more question. How did he know you were cops? The agent finally responded. How do you know when a cow is sick? Bob considered that. Experience, he guessed. Ooh. And the plot thickens. Yeah, and Marsing is a very quiet community, guys. There is there are not federal agents descending on Marsing, Idaho. Probably have you ever, ever been to Marsing? This one time. I have been to Marsing. Yes. I've been through Marsing. Yeah, it's beautiful. Is it south of Boise? It's southwest of Boise. It's kind of south of Caldwell, between Caldwell and Nampa. Uh, it's, oh, I think the I've Snake been there. River is huge. It runs through this valley, um, and it's really big. 
just in that particular area. And they have like um, jet boat, like a big jet boat annual race there every year. Yes. Okay. I have been there. It is pretty. But it's very quiet. Yeah. Their roads are, are named Hog Road and Cemetery Road. And they have lizards lying in the sun. (laughs) Yes. Buttes all over. Enrico Ponzo grew up in Swamp Scott uh, Seaside Town on Boston's North Shore. And his father managed a restaurant in the city where Ponzo spent much of his time. The restaurant was in the North End, a traditionally Italian neighborhood that at the time was also the headquarters of the local mafia franchise, an affiliate Patriarcha family run out of Providence. At some point in the late 1980s, exactly when and why are unclear, but the reasons can be fairly summarized as young and foolish, Ponzo allegedly decided he wanted to be a mobster. In the narrative assembled by the authorities, Ponzo's life of crime was both violent and inept, which fits remarkably well with the broader story of organized crime in New England during those years. Raymond Patriarcha Sr. had been an old-school mafia boss. He died of a heart attack in 1984, and control of the family fell to his son, Raymond Jr., who everyone called Jr. Jr. was known to be both lazy and stupid, And this is when Ponzo decided that he wanted to be a mobster. Sounds like a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. In the mafia hierarchy, a kid like Ponzo would have been an associate, not a made man himself, but allied with one. In his case, a renegade capo named Bobby Carroza, who happened to be staging an insurrection against Junior. Carroza wanted Junior to open the books, that is, induct new members who presumably would then be loyal to the man who helped get them made, Carosa. Junior refused, so to speed negotiations, Carosa affiliates shot a couple of Junior's lieutenants. One target was an underboss named Billy, the wild guy, Grasso. He got a bullet in the back of the neck. The second was Francis Cadillac Frank Seleme. Seleme Salame. <laughs> Whatever. A Boston soldier who'd been acting as an intermediary between the Carroza faction and Junior. He was walking toward the front door of an IHOP when a rented sedan squealed into the parking lot. Two passengers with guns sprayed bullets in his general direction. Saleme, badly injured but not fatally wounded, dove for cover as the shooters peeled away. One of the shooters, according to a federal indictment, was Enrico Ponzo. He was 20 years old. After that, Ponzo's rap sheet reads like that of your standard street thug. In 1989, he was picked up on assault and firearm charges, and he was arrested in 1992 for beating a stranger outside of a hotel with an ex-con and reputed killer named Billy Hurd. The Boston Globe reported after the 1992 arrest that Ponzo was, quote, considered by law enforcement to be a mafia up-and-comer, end quote. This particular organization made its money through trafficking drugs, loan sharking, extortion, and illegal gambling. Ponzo's duties included collecting envelopes, that is, using threats and intimidation to extort money from bookies and drug dealers. He also collected debts owed from loan sharking. In addition to his collecting business, Ponzo was also involved in drug dealing. The Boston Mafia, by the middle of the 1990s, had simply rotted into a dysfunctional menagerie of coked-up, trigger-happy halfwits. Any theory is as good as another. For whatever reasons, though, a lot of people around Ponzo started getting shot. On September 2nd, an associate named Mikey Romano Jr. was executed near an Everett bar, the Stadium Cafe. 
Moments after Ponzo and another man left him to change a flat tire. Two weeks later, the owner of this stadium survived five gunshots on a street in Revere. Quote, it definitely doesn't seem like a coincidence, one cop told the Globe the day after. It wasn't. Ponzo and three others were later charged with that shooting, allegedly his second attempted and failed hit. The bloodletting continued through the fall and into the winter of 1994. In late October, a mob enforcer named Joseph Souza was shot on an East Boston street corner. Two months later, a 25-year-old associate of Ponzo's named Paul Strazula was found in a burning Oldsmobile in a VFW parking lot in Revere. Ponzo was a ghost by then. He missed a November court date on the state drug charges, skipped bail, vanished. Maybe he was running from the law, but probably not. He had a very good lawyer. Most likely, he was running for his life. A lot of people, in fact, assumed he was dead because Enrico Ponzo was supposed to be dead. Three years after he fled, a federal grand jury indicted Ponzo and 14 other men for an enormous assortment of crimes. It is an 87-page chronology of Boston's incoherent mob wars of the 80s and early 90s, and Ponzo plays two opposing roles. In it, he is accused of attempted murder, conspiracy to commit murder, extortion, and drug trafficking. Yet, he appears first on page 14 and then on 67 under different circumstances. Quote, in or about October of 1994, the indictment reads, Michael P. Romano Sr., Anthony Campi and Paul A. DeCalgero, defendants herein, did knowingly and intentionally combine, conspire, confederate, and agree with each other and with other persons known and unknown to the grand jury to murder Enrico M. Ponzo, end quote. Of course, Ponzo ran. There's a lot of Italian names that I got to brush up on here, sister. I know, Phil, you know, this really could have been a two-parter. With the water? With the in water? In Boston? Yeah, it really could have. Because there's a lot of stuff that I didn't put in here just be, for time constraints. But there's a lot more interesting stuff about all of this. And I kind of fell down a mafia rabbit hole. But you would. it really is the, I mean, just a bigger group of fucking bozos you'd be hard-pressed to come across. Just the... <laughs> I feel like, God, like, do we say that in every story? It's always like, it's like me saying to myself, why are people so fucking stupid? Guess what? I say it every single fucking day. Yeah. There were a lot of very interesting things and a lot of interesting characters that, that I came across when I was researching this. And it is interesting because Ponza was a bad guy, but he was also a victim of a hit. Yeah, he was a murderer, but there was also a hit out on him from his his own crew because he was such a messy fucker. I am. I can totally picture. Like I'm now <laughs> picturing Joe Pesci. And yeah. His yeah, this would be amazing. Uh-huh. Get some Robert De Niro in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, so of course he took off. Yeah, like he right. knew he knew they were after him. He knew <laughs> that between the cops and his own crew that wanted to kill him. He was in some some hot water. Some hot and water, west, sir. Yeah, some exactly. hot water. Yeah. So while in hiding, Ponzo implored a drug dealer named Melly to set him up with a marijuana trafficking business in Arizona. 
Obliging the request, Melly, after helping Ponzo move to Arizona, introduced him to his marijuana shipping business. And these two managed to package pot in Arizona and then ship it to Massachusetts. During this time, Ponzo bought some books called How to Disappear Completely and Never Be Found, Counterfeit ID Made Easy, and Vanish! Exclamation <laughs> point. Seems like some legit books to get some research from. from. Yeah. Ponzo had his picture on driver's licenses and other documents from five states under eight different names. Before he was Jay Shaw, he lived for a while as Kenneth R. Fiddler, who, according to the real Kenneth Fiddler's obituary, drowned in Colorado in 1970 when he was five years old. Ponzo had pulled a copy of the boy's birth certificate. And then he used that to get a social security card, an Arizona learner's permit, and a driver's license. He also had his photo on a Glendale Community College student ID in that name and on a badge for a computer company called Mobile PC Doctors, which listed his title as computer tech. A name can also simply be invented and corresponding IDs can be forged from black market blanks. And this appears to be what he did with the alias of Jeffrey John Shaw. As Shaw, Ponzo and his co-conspirators purchased and shipped between 1,000 and 1,500 pounds of pot a year to the Bay State. Then sometime in the late 1990s, Ponzo met a very tall redhead named Kara. They fell in love and decided to move out of Arizona together eventually. In the spring of 2001, Jay and Kara were driving along Sunny Slope, which is a part of Highway 55 in Idaho, when they saw Marsing. They thought it looked like a great place to settle down and raise a family. They found land for sale on Hog Road, and Jay paid cash around $51,000 for the land, which he put in Kara's name. They built a house also paid for in cash, with Jay handing stacks of money to carpenters, roofers, electricians for any work that they did. He had it built at the very back of a lot, which slopes up to a ridge running parallel to the road. The master bedroom was on the ground floor, windowless, and sort of dug into the side of the slope like a bunker. On the main floor, there was a big deck wrapped around two sides and wide windows that gave him a clear view of the valley in front of the house, and he could see anyone coming for miles. Then they started to meet the neighbors. Jim Briggs had Jay and Kara over for a barbecue shortly after they finished their house and found them both to be, quote, a little too New York for his taste. Kara got a job working at a local orchard as a bookkeeper, and Jay started pretending to be a farmer. He'd go out in his field wearing bib overalls and a straw hat, offering to help neighbors with their cattle or anything they needed, although it was clear he had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. His neighbor, Dale, said, quote, he wanted to help, but he just didn't have much ability. He had good livestock, though, a small herd that grew over the years, but they were all slick, which means they were unbranded because registering a brand involves filing paperwork with authorities. While Jay tried to fit in, Kara managed to stay almost a total mystery for the entire 10 years that she lived in Marsing. She would wave and say hello to the neighbors, but never had actual conversations with them. 
They knew she made a really good cheesecake and that she was into firearms. When she got to town, people noticed she had a swastika tattooed on her right leg, but she later did have it covered up with a different tattoo. She told one of her coworkers that she had had a tough time as a kid and left home early, but that's really the extent of what people in Marsing, or really anywhere, knew about Kara. Jay made some friends, including a man named Roy, who would often tease him, accusing Jay of being in the mafia. He would say, quote, you don't work, you never go anywhere, but you always have money. I know you're mafia. Then Roy would laugh while his grandkids chased after Jay so they could listen to the funny way he talked. It was only a joke, Roy having no idea how close he was to the truth. I like that he was trying to be a helpful, clueless farmer. Yeah. <laughs> One guy talks about how he goes, well, you know, he, he always wore bib overalls and a straw hat. And, you know, while people did that in the 1930s, for sure, it was an odd look for somebody <laughs> This time, like he really was out there trying to play a part, and he bought twelve cows. Like that was going to make him a rancher. Twelve cows. When you don't know, you don't know. They'll reproduce. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I'm also not a rancher, so wouldn't know much. No, but this house, and we'll post the house, the the property pictures and stuff. But this house was really nice. It was huge. The property was really pretty. And the fact that he was just handing out stacks of cash to people, and you know it's Idaho because nobody fucking questioned any of it. No one was like, this seems suspicious that you're handing me $100,000 in cash and you don't want your name on any paperwork. All right. That's your business. That's your business. Mind your business. (laughs) Yeah. We're good at that in Idaho. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. Not us. We're not. No, never us. (laughs) We're terrible. (laughs) Then the kids were born. When they were babies, Jay laundered the diapers and hung them to dry. As they got older, he taught them how to read and to count and took them fishing in his little aluminum boat and showed them how to feed a newborn calf from a bottle. So he learned some things. Yeah. He figured out a thing or two. Yeah. He got them ready for school in the morning and took them to the White House drive-thru for hamburgers in the afternoon, and the boy followed him, close as a shadow, while Jay did his chores. In the spring of 2010, Kara was obviously unhappy. She was more withdrawn, almost sullen. Her co-workers noticed it, too. She would complain about her marriage at work. People noticed that she didn't seem to spend a lot of time with her family and that Jay was primarily responsible for taking care of the kids and the land. And according to Jay, Kara would come home and go straight to the bedroom, close the door, get on her computer, and stay on the computer until the kids went to bed. He'd suspected she was having a cyber affair for months. Later, according to friends, he logged into her Facebook account and called up explicit chat logs, and he photographed the screen so he'd have a record. He went so far as to order a kit, marketed as an infidelity test that uses chemicals to detect semen. (laughs) It's a lot for me to take in. Detect semen where? On her underpants. Ew, sick. And I also <laughs> don't like it when you say underpants. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to say. I'm not saying panties. That's gross. Stop! <laughs> what would you say? Underwear. Underpants. Underwear. Your underpants. It's, under, it's underpants. <laughs> underpants. 
I don't know. I don't like it. <laughs> I never said I was. I am not often described as logical, Whitney. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, he never opened the kit. Mm -hmm. So by the beginning of August, it was clear Kara was leaving. On August 15th, she got in her car and left Jay. A week later, she came back for the children and moved to her parents' house in Utah. They never married, so the paperwork was minimal. On August 5th, Jay filed a deed, which Kara actually had signed years earlier, putting the house and land in his name. Seven days later, they both signed a parenting plan agreement detailing a custody schedule and travel arrangements and medical care. Kara would have physical custody during most of the school year, and Jay would have the kids for most holidays, the summer, and some weekends if he stayed in Utah. Once or twice a month, Jay was to meet Kara in Burley, Idaho, almost 400 miles round trip, to pick the kids up on Friday and take them to Marsing, and then drive another 400 to return them on Sunday. But Ponzo says that he never wanted to sign the parenting plan. He said, quote, it was under duress. I didn't want them to go, but she was like, I'm taking them. And if you have anything to say about it, I'm calling the sheriff. And with this family gone, Jay fell apart. On a morning at the end of August, Jay's friend Dale was stuck in traffic. A paving crew had Highway 95 shut down in one direction for more than a mile which meant anyone trying to get to town had to wait 15, maybe 20 minutes at Cemetery Road until a flagger waved him in behind a pilot car. Dale was parked there when Jay rolled up behind him, switched off his engine, and got out of his Saturn. He walked to the side of Dale's truck, rested an arm against the top of the door, and then melted into tears. Kara left, he said. She took my kids. He was sobbing now. I'm going to kill myself. I don't know what else to do. No one really worried Jay would put a bullet in his head, but he was clearly miserable. So he did the best he could. He'd go to friends' houses, go downtown to the local bar, go watch hockey games with his, his buddy Kelly, and mess around with computers. He even briefly considered becoming a lawyer. He drove his appointed round trips to Burley, and when he wasn't with the kids, Jay talked to them either on the phone or over Skype, depending on whether Kara would let them. But things were spinning out of control, and he knew it. I love how he's just like, like pulls a Kim Kardashian. I think I'm going to be a lawyer. Yeah, this guy has a, a very inflated sense of his his own intelligence, which you'll you'll come to see during the court proceedings. But I truly cannot imagine this woman. I mean, she knew who he was. And so she's like, no, I'm taking the kids. And if you have anything to say about it, I'll just call the sheriff. He didn't have a fucking choice in the matter. He knew she would turn him in. Right. If he didn't do what she wanted. But it really is interesting. They interviewed a lot of um, different people from Marsing in some of these articles, and they all said Jay was the one, was the parent. He's the one who took care of these kids, right. and that the mom was very hands off. And so he really he was a stay at home dad. He he raced them, and then she left with them, and there was nothing that he could do. I wonder why she decided to take them. It didn't seem like she really had much interest in being a mom. Yeah, I'm not sure why she decided to take him. And she has Probably. some things to say about him, which which very well could be true from the outside. And of course, no one knows what happens in a relationship for except for the people in the relationship. But from from the outside, it, it did look like she wasn't she wasn't super involved. So I thought it was strange too that she took the kids if she just spite. wanted to like leave. Yeah. Maybe just some spite. Maybe. 
The separation was taking a real toll on Jay and Kara's son. He'd always been kind of a wild kid, but according to an affidavit filed by Kara with the court, her son had, quote, aggression problems and troubles abiding by rules authority that he developed before moving to Utah, unquote. Jay, on the other hand, would maintain that the boy's behavior was the result of his children suffering emotionally because of their abrupt separation from their father, family, friends, and school in Idaho. He doesn't go into elaborate detail, but everyone that was interviewed in Idaho all tell similar stories about Jay's son acting up in school in Utah, um, them hearing about angry outbursts, about him making some really alarming statements at school, saying he's going to bring a gun to school and shoot the school up. Jay told them that at one point, doctors had been involved to deal with the boy's behavior and that Kara had had him put on two different prescription medications by the time that he was eight years old. And this is after she's left. So he was known to be just like a, you know, wild eight-year-old boy, but nothing troublesome or problematic until he went to Utah. Jay was infuriated with Kara and panicked for his son. He'd always considered her a part-time parent at best and one who was easily frustrated, unable, or unwilling to tolerate an active child. He was certain his kids were unraveling in Utah, especially his son. By late autumn, rescuing his kids was all Jay could talk about. Jay Shaw decided to sue Kara for custody. Now, doing this meant that this fictitious person, John Jay Shaw, had to walk into the Owyhee County Courthouse and file a legal binding document that could theoretically expose him after almost 17 years of being on the run. So on January 11th, Jay filed the affidavit in which he said his children were, quote, suffering emotionally and that they had been summarily taken to Utah by their mother upon her unilateral decision. Two weeks later, Kara responded with her own affidavit in which she said that Jay, quote, has been a heavy drinker for many years and that his aggression was growing towards me so much that I was fearful for my life. A hearing was scheduled for the beginning of February, and Jay had some local friends and family willing to testify as character witnesses for him, but the hearing was canceled. A few nights later, on Saturday, February 5th, Jay was at his friend Fernie's house on the phone with Kara in the backyard. And Fernie knew, just like everybody in the community, that Jay's case, he wasn't going to get anywhere with it. He said, quote, no judge gives the kids to an unemployed father unless the mother's a prostitute or a drug addict and probably both, he told Jay, especially an Idaho judge. Still, if Jay was going to try, he was better off being civil about it, not doing anything overly hostile. Be nice, he told Jay when he got on the phone. Don't piss her off. The call started fine from what Fernie could hear. Jay seemed calm, but then his voice got louder and Fernie heard a fuck you and a motherfucker and another fuck you before Jay threw his phone down into the dirt. Jay, Fernie said, you just cut your own throat. Then 48 hours later, Jay Shaw was arrested on Hog Road. During a search of the house after Ponzo's arrest, federal agents found a small bust of Hitler shoulder patches for neo-Nazi groups, and white supremacist literature. The Boston Herald on June 29th interpreted that to mean Ponzo had, quote, tried to go native as a white supremacist. In addition to slurring almost the entire population of Idaho, that also was incorrect. 
Ponzo's lawyer pointed that out in a follow-up story the next day, but he did not say that those materials belonged to Kara, as Ponzo's friends maintain. Police seized $118,000 in cash, plus $65,000 in gold coins, a bar of silver, a diamond ring, 33 guns, and tens of thousands of bullets. Although Ponzo denies those are his. One of the first people he called after his arrest was Bodie Clapier. Ponzo said he was sorry he never told him the truth, and he asked Bodie to tell his wife he was sorry too. Quote, this is a bunch of bullshit, Jay Shaw said. But I'm going to be here a long time. Will you feed my cows? He had called friends in Marsing to say he was sorry and to tell them which pipes in the irrigation system needed fixing. He asked them to feed his dogs and his cows. It must be a weight off your chest that you don't have to hide this anymore, said Kelly Versellis, a friend from Idaho who recently visited Mr. Ponzo while he was behind bars there. He said, dude, I might be going to jail forever, end quote. Following his arrest in Idaho, a federal grand jury in Massachusetts issued a superseding indictment against Ponzo, which included charges for his conduct in Arizona and two new charges for his activity in Massachusetts. After a 26-day trial, a jury convicted him of conspiracy to commit racketeering, a conspiracy to commit murder in aid of racketeering, using or carrying a firearm during a crime of violence, conspiracy to distribute and to possess with the intent to distribute 500 grams or more of cocaine, and conspiracy to collect extensions of credit by extortionate means, unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, conspiracy to distribute and to possess with intent to distribute at least a 1,000 kilograms of marijuana, conspiracy to commit money laundering, laundering of monetary instruments, and attempting to tamper with a witness. And then Ponzo made the smarty pants decision to fire his attorney and do Whitney's most favorite thing in the whole wide world and represent himself at his sentencing. Mm-hmm. Wait for it. This is just one of the greatest things I've ever heard. Quote, hi, Your Honor, Ponzo said with a broad smile. I'm Rico Ponzo, per se, meaning on one's own behalf. Judge, have you attended law school? Ponzo, no, I haven't, but I've studied law for many years on the internet and books, and I have, like, the whole federal United States code annotated at my house. Judge, would it be fair to say that you're self-taught? Ponzo, yes, Your Honor, like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Imagine how well that went. Like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> Self-taught from the internet. That was like yep. the scariest thing anyone can ever say. Ponzo rambled, talked about water rights in Idaho, being called Mr. Mom for being a stay-at-home dad, and he claimed he fled Boston, not because of his crimes, but because his fellow defendants wanted to kill him. He called the witnesses at trial liars, and not once did he use the phrase, I regret, or I'm sorry. Okay, I've had enough, Mr. Ponzo, the judge said. Enough, Gorton said, of the excuses, posturing, fabrications, and blaming others. You and your cohort of thugs had held a reign of terror, he told Ponzo. You can run, but ultimately you cannot hide from your sordid participation in organized crime. 28 years in prison. Yeah. Woof. Yep. Woof is correct. And that was not all. 
Because then, guys, Ponza was flown back to Idaho to face the weapons charges for the more than 30 weapons that police had found hidden inside the Marsing home. There was a plea deal. There was a lot of back and forth. The prosecution asked that Ponzo receive a 57-month sentence for the gun charges on top of his 28 years that he received from the judge in Massachusetts. Prosecution claimed he was violent while incarcerated at the Ada County Jail. He was described as one of the worst prisoners jail guards had ever seen with, and this is wild, 90 disciplinary infractions while jailed in Ada County. 90. (laughs) Just while he was there for this trial. This was not prison. This was just the jail. Yes. Ponzo, who elected to defend himself in this court, called the Ada County Jail, quote, the worst jail I've ever been in. He then went on to claim he reportedly spent seven days in the hole for having a Bible in his possession. Ponzo also claimed jail guards unnecessarily strip searched him. And when he resisted, he alleged the guards placed him in a chokehold. Ponzo argued that although he did bad things in the past, his life drastically changed in 1997 when his mother died and that he is now a new person. Judge Edward Lodge handed down a sentence of 46 months. Half of that time would be served concurrently, um, so not adding to Ponzo's 28-year sentence for the Boston crimes, and the other half, 23 months, would be added, so nearly two more years in prison to his total prison time. And the judge said, after all the posturing, rhetoric, excuses, blaming others, the time has come for you to pay for your crimes. And he did a an interview with a local news station while he was here and, you know, told his story. Some of it was very interesting. Some of it was clearly bullshit. They interviewed a lot of people from Marsing who continued to, like, have his back. They all still called him Jay. They were all like, well, he's a nice guy. We, they were like keeping his cows fed for him and and like expecting that this man was going to come back and live his life. But a lot of people had very nice things to say about him. He apparently, though, once he got incarcerated, went back to his old ways. He got in trouble a lot. He, he kept punching um, guards in the head, apparently, at the Ada County Jail. <laughs> Seems like a bad decision. <laughs> yes. Oh, Yes, but he had lost all contact with his kids. Kara has never talked to anyone. And I'm fairly certain that he's dead now. I couldn't find any articles or anything saying that he had died, which I found surprising because I thought if he had died, there would would be articles. Mm -hmm. But when I looked him up, it said... And there could be another Enrico Ponzo, and maybe I got my my wires crossed. But it looks like he died in 2019 in jail. Hmm. So I thought there would probably be stories about it if he had, but I couldn't find anything. So he may still be alive, but I, I'm pretty sure he died young. So he must have been sick or or something. Or somebody got sick of him punching people in the heads. It could got be. Sick of his shit. Yeah. It sounds like the people of Marsing are very nice and also forgiving. Yes. Like maybe very that nice. would have been the place to go back. Like maybe he should have gone back. Like they plan on him coming back to help with the cows, finish out his yeah. his rancher work there. Seems like Well, 
You would think, but let's talk about my O-Idaho. Let's do it. So when Jay, when Ponzo lived in Marsing, his best friend's name was Kelly Versalis. That was his best friend. Okay. They were friends a long time, many years. And after Ponzo went away, Kelly visited him. Kelly even moved in to Ponzo's house in Marsing, essentially to like take care of the house and the cows and stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, he was arrested and charged after he had moved in to this house and then stolen a whole bunch of money and gold from a safe in the house that uh, should have been turned over to the authorities. So I'm going to read you guys this, this article I found. A Marsing man charged with taking cash and gold from the home of alleged mobster Enrico Ponzo died Wednesday from an apparent gunshot wound, according to Owyhee County officials. Kelly Versellis, 40, appeared to suffer a self-inflicted shot to the head. A 22 caliber rifle was found near Versellis' body in Ponzo's house on Hog Road outside Marsing. No suicide note was found at the scene. Rosellis had been caretaking for Ponzo, who was then awaiting trial for federal charges, including attempted murder from his alleged involvement with the New England La Cosa Nostra gang. Rosellis was scheduled to appear in district court February 10th for a change of plea on felony charges of criminal conspiracy, burglary, and grand theft. He had originally pleaded not guilty. Sheriff's deputies conducted a welfare check around 9 a.m., and then that's when they found him. They had received a call from an acquaintance concerned that he had not made a scheduled telephone call and had not shown up at work. So prosecutors say that Vercellis and these two other guys, Robert and Nicholas Corson, used a jackhammer and a blowtorch to remove a safe hidden in a concrete floor of Ponzo's basement and were accused of stealing $162,000 in cash and gold coins. Whoopsie daisies. Yeah. (laughs) So you wonder, like, did he, I mean, he had to have said, hey, there's a safe buried in the concrete floor that they didn't find. So you guys busted out and give me some and you guys can have some or something. But the cops found out about it. How did they find out? Well, I don't know. People can't keep their damn mouths shut. That's why. No. That's what happened. And these guys were not... These guys were not mobsters. These guys were farmers from Marsing. Yeah. Criminals. But they I mean, were if not. You, here's the thing. Even if you find even if you win the lottery, yeah. all in the up and up, legal beagle. Yeah. Just don't tell people. Just don't tell Agreed. anybody. I would never it's tell. It's never anyone. good. Mm-mm. No. No. I mean, you no. would tell me. Uh, yeah. Because I would, I would tell need you. a well, because I would probably need a loan. Which is why they tell you not to tell people, but you got me. So that's that. You can't even say anything. Yeah. No. Um, Same news. I definitely, I wouldn't go on the news. Like, I wouldn't be interviewed on the news if I won the lottery. I wouldn't tell people that I won the lottery. I would keep it very, very hush-hush and quiet. Because I'm telling you, I've watched those shows. Oh, my God. Me, too. That win the lottery and their lives are fucking ruined. Lottery nightmares. That's what it's called. Yes. Yeah. And now these guys are going to jail, too. Like, no, thank you. Yeah. Don't be dumb. Here's the first thing. Hire a financial advisor and shut up. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Free advice. <laughs> and that's 
exactly what these guys should have done too. Uh, yes, they should have. So there. Yeah. So this is just, I mean, I find it to be just, it's a very interesting story, but it's also just very sad. Like it's all just, sad. it is sad. Actually it makes me sad. Panda. I don't know. Mobster stories are all very interesting to me. It's just so like, yeah, well, we don't have convoluted like, and yeah, we don't, we don't have mob stories in Idaho. Like this is the closest that we've come. Yeah. So, yeah. but it is crazy. Well, I mean, I, I, 17 years, that's a long fucking time. And he didn't, he wasn't like squeaky clean for the first seven of those years. He was like trafficking drugs in Arizona. I mean, he didn't get on, you know, non-criminal until he moved to Idaho. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. There's something about the mob. Pretty sure I know some people that were in the mob. Who? You know them too. I do? Yeah. We've talked about this. We have? My dad's, par- my dad's partner's in the architecture firm. <gasps> oh, yes. <laughs> I'm pretty certain that they're in the Basque mob. I'm just saying. You oh, my I'm gosh. Kidding, but I don't think. never think, think about the Bascos, but you know mm. what? They're tough motherfuckers. They could totally be in the mob. Yeah, and there's. I yeah. should ask Ken. He's the and they're super the Bascos, you know, in Idaho. They're the, the super Idaho, like the Basque Association. Ken's their lawyer. They're super like in familio too. <laughs> did I just speak? A, did I speak a language? Familio. No. Nope. Okay, that cool. is not even a word in any. All right, language, sure. all right, good. Um, el familia. That nope. is yes, it's huh, not, bitch? It's not el familia. El it's familia la, is plural. It's la familia. Okay. Well, anyways, guys, <laughs> that is a story of Camden teaching you Spanish and also the alien language. <laughs> Idaho's running with the mob and the bozos who couldn't keep their paws off the coins and their mouths trapped. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed hanging out <laughs> tonight. And if you didn't, suck an egg. <laughs> I'm in a weird mood. Oh, man. Yeah, guys, do that. Yeah, we'll see you next week. (laughs) Bye.